listening to By the Well, a lectionary-based podcast for preachers recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people. Well, hello and welcome to the By the Well podcast. I'm Sean Winter and I'm the head of college at Pilgrim Theological College and I'm here with my colleague Monica. Welcome, Monica. Thank you, Sean. Good to be here. We are here for the 22nd Sunday after Pentecost to look at the readings for that Sunday, and we've got quite a range of readings. We're going to begin by looking at Jeremiah chapter 31, and then we're going to move straight from Jeremiah, I think, to talk a bit about the gospel text set for this week from Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. But there are a couple of other passages as well, um, Psalm 119, 97 to 104, and then uh, 2 Timothy uh, 3, uh, about four, verse 14 through to 4, verse 5. So we'll get to those maybe at the end, but maybe we'll focus, Monica, this morning on the Jeremiah text and the Gospel text and then see where that gets us. So um, we are uh, in the middle of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 31, and the verses that have been set, verses 27 to 34, are in the form of some kind of prophetic oracle. So just set a bit of the context for us, Monica, and then um, take us through some of the things that you see in Jeremiah's words. Yes. Um, in this, uh, The background to this passage uh, lies in the fact that Jeremiah was an eyewitness to the plight of the exile and its devastating uh, effects on the people of Jerusalem. So all established structures of, uh, of the society, temple, monarchy, land, all were in waste, and uh, th- there was a sense of desolation and suffering, abandonment and, and pain. And so we can only imagine this bedlam by those who have uh, experienced war and uh, conflict, the people were feeling despondent, perhaps also angry with God and doubtful about God's power, uh, grief-stricken at the loss of life, property, um, and all uh, all of which had been either destroyed or plundered by the invading Babylonians. And so in this context, Jeremiah proclaims this oracle, which is a word of hope. And uh, as, as some of us might know, Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. Uh, and as the weeping prophet, uh, many of his oracles are of grief, of lament. A bit pessimistic, on uh, yeah. the pessimistic side Anger, of things. Anger, yeah. doubt, reproach. But here you have a word of hope. And this hope is founded not only on the repentance of the people, but also rooted in the bountiful mercy uh, and grace of God. So this is a very iconic passage uh, because it begins with this expression of very uh, of hopeful pragmatism mm. um, in of the prophet's acknowledgement uh, of the suffering because he has seen it and he acknowledges it and therefore he begins with the word of hope uh, and a word that says yes we are in the you know we will endure the exile but we will all come out of it yeah yeah Yeah? and it's it's phrased in terms of this language of the renewal of the covenant Mm -hmm. or the formation of a a, a new Mm -hmm. covenant um and verse 32 says it it kind of won't like be the old covenant but of course in one sense it is it's a renewal of that covenant because um uh, god is committing god's self to restore israel after the crisis and the trauma of exile and the hopelessness uh, that they experience uh, in, in that context. Um, and the language of covenant um, is so strongly associated with other kind of attributes of God in the Hebrew Bible, isn't it? The notion of God's faithfulness to Israel, God's mercy, you mentioned mm-hmm. that term, um, the notion of God's justice. Mm-hmm. How do you think this um, this kind of oracle 
relate to the experience of people who uh, are experiencing some kind of trauma or loss of or, or hopelessness what's the content of the the positive or optimistic message that jeremiah brings I think very often when people are in the midst of suffering and and trauma, uh, it is possible that uh, they may be looking at themselves and saying, "What have I done to deserve this? Have I done uh, what you know? Have I sinned? You know, you know those kinds of questions are yeah. usually the first questions that they ask of themselves. And so it's interesting here in this passage uh, that the prophet's words first of all acknowledge that God has is watching. God is looking down. Mm-hmm. God has seen you suffer, mm-hmm. and God is now going to watch over your rebuilding mm-hmm. and your restoration. That's the first thing. Secondly, the prophet also says uh, that God, we have all been forgiven. Yep. Okay, so each generation will pay for its own, uh, you know, its wrongdoing. It's the the sins or the wrongdoings of the father are not going to be experienced or felt by the by the next generation. So, uh, forgiveness. So once, so it's almost like we are now starting off on, with a with a new slate. Yep. Yeah, we have we have been forgiven. All the uh, all the grudges have been have been dispelled. Right. Okay, and so now we uh, we we begin uh, afresh this uh, this relationship, and therefore the giving of the new covenant. And this new covenant now is something that is being given to everybody, irrespective of their status in society, their class, their race, their gender. So everyone has access to this uh, to this uh, new uh, new covenant. I think it's important to uh, establish the fact that this new covenant is uh, is not new in t- uh, in, t- in terms of content. That's right. Uh, it's it's the same covenant, but the covenant is being renewed. Yeah. Yeah. So there's the the problematic inheritance of these kinds of traditions into early Christianity, of course, the, yeah. because the new covenant. Bit like the phrase "the New Testament" can easily be read in a kind of supersessionistic mm. way to think that the old covenant no longer has any. Yeah. Um, but uh, what we have in um, verse thirty-three there is we have a we have a repetition, don't we, of that covenant formula that mm. we have so many times in the Hebrew Bible? I will be their God; mm-hmm. they will be my people. So yeah. it's a reiteration, renewal, restoration of that covenant. Of that relation. covenant, yeah. and what is what is important is that it is implanted in each person, right. inscri- inscribed, ingrained in the hearts of people. And so the individual is guaranteed of having been accepted by God, forgiven and accepted by God, and therefore Yahweh confirms, or God confirms, yeah. I will be their God mm. and they shall be my yeah. uh, my people. And and I think uh, it's 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 significant that this passage, which is addressed primarily to the Judahites, also includes Israel, yeah. uh, the northern uh, the northern kingdom. So it's more holistic for the whole uh, for the whole hand a uh, whole land yeah, yeah yeah so there's a kind of inclusivity a breadth yeah. of that covenant relationship and restoration um, yeah. that's implied and yeah. and these things just to go back to your earlier point these things are not articulated for the sake of it but because precisely a reorientation towards that relationship is the source of hope mm-hmm. in the context of trauma and hopelessness yes yeah. and I think it's it's uh, it's important also to uh, to uh, to say that these people will no longer require priestly or scribal mediation. Right. I don't know what all preachers will do <laughs> or teachers will do, uh, but basically it is it is giving the right to every individual to interpret the scripture for himself or herself. And I think this, for me, uh, it it also resonates with uh, Luther's idea of making the Bible available in the local dialect to all people. Right. So that they are no longer, uh, you know, dependent on the on the on the learned, so to yeah, speak. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so this is the yeah. phrase: "I will put my law within them; I will write it on their mm. hearts." Yeah. This is a really important um, phrase.
is an idea. It's it's reused in the New Testament. Paul uses it very famously in two Corinthians three as part of an argument that he makes. He makes there, um, and uh, maybe we'll hold that idea of God's word, God's law, God's scripture, or scripture mm-hmm. itself, kind of somehow being not something out there, but something that relates very strongly to who we are in our own lives. Yeah. We'll hold that thought and come back to it um, towards the end. Yeah. Did you know you could join our Facebook group, By the Well, for extra content and discussion? So now that we have learned a little bit about what Jeremiah is saying here, what are the connections with the with the gospel lesson, do you think? Well, our gospel lesson is a parable um, from Luke chapter 18, uh, often called the parable of the widow or the persevering widow or the parable of the unjust judge. And um, the difference between those two titles kind of reflects both the two main characters in the story, but also perhaps the two main themes that emerge and the way in which we think about exploring why Jesus uses this parable. Um, The connection with the Jeremiah theme, I think, is fairly clear in that the widow quite clearly is in a hopeless situation. Mm -hmm. So everything that we know about the social location of widows um, in the ancient world, in the time of Jesus, suggests that this is someone who uh, was always going to be um, struggling for a place, an identity, a role, um, access to resources, um, financial support, um, uh, and access to justice. (laughs) We don't know quite what her cause was, Mm -hmm. but we do know that she is there Um, pleading for justice on her own. She has no advocate. Um, Courts in the ancient world largely were male-only affairs. Women didn't turn up and appear on their own. They had kind of male advocates Mm -hmm. who pleaded their case for them. She has access to none of that. Mm -hmm. And so she goes directly to the judge out of her situation um, of uh, hopelessness and the injustice that she's experienced um, at the hands of some kind of enemy or an opponent. Um, and she pleads for justice to be granted. The relation with the Jeremiah text comes into focus much more clearly in the last couple of verses because Jesus quite clearly applies the text to refer to the idea of what it means to wait for, long for, pray for, work for Mm. um, the coming of God's justice. Mm. Um, so uh, will not God ju- grant justice to his chosen ones who um, cry to him day and night? So I think the parable um, kind of individualizes the kind of national crisis <laughs> that we find in Jeremiah mm-hmm. and rearticulates this same story through the lens of the story, this mini drama of these two individuals in some degree of encounter and conflict with one another. But the theological question behind both is, Um, Can we be confident that God will deliver and save God's people, that God will bring justice? Um, And remember that justice language in the New Testament and in the Hebrew Bible is fundamentally relational. Mm -hmm. It's it's about God, you know, declaring um, right decisions, about God finding people innocent um, in the face of accusations of guilt. But primarily it's about the restoring of right relationships Mm -hmm. between 
uh, between people. And so I think it connects very strongly with that um, Jeremiah reading. Yeah, I think, uh, yes, that is, uh, that's, that's good. Uh, I think it, for me, it also uh, highlights the, 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 the struggles for justice of uh, many communities in the world today and their repeated, uh, you know, um, uh, struggle to, to find justice yeah. um, and being being turned down or being turned away, um, and so uh, you know, uh, what is it that Jesus will will find when the Son of Man comes? Will he find on earth? What will for me that question is quite pertinent, mm. uh, and and I think um, um, what what the Son of Man <laughs> yeah. will find, I think, is is the is the resilience of people. Uh, in the in the face of uh, in the face of oppression, you know. So that's uh, really good. So yeah. well, um, uh, resilience is a good word, a really interesting word in this re- regard. So what we have in the Greek in verse eight is uh, the question: Will the Son of Man find the faith mm-hmm. on earth? And what that means is: Will the Son of Man find the faith that has just been epitomized by this woman in this story? Sure. Mm. And faith language is another word that gets easily kind of misconstrued. We regard it as something either overly passive, faith is our kind of just, you know, our acceptance of certain things, or overly Mm intellectualised, it's our kind of adherence to certain kinds of beliefs Mm -hmm. or doctrines or whatever else. Um, But that's not the faith that's epitomised here. The faith that's epitomised is is resilience, um, persistence, persistence, loyalty, faithfulness to God's promises, um, and to the cause of justice. And um, the woman's kind of holding on to those things um, is uh, portrayed in a, a pretty kind of dramatic way. Um, there's a really interesting antecedent text to this. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a question about kind of where this story came from. Um, and there's a passage in, those of you who have Bibles with an apocrypha in it, mm-hmm. you'll know that in the apocrypha there's a text that's sometimes called Ecclesiasticus mm-hmm. or Ben Sira. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Ben Sira chapter 35, there's a whole passage about God's justice uh, and particularly God's justice on behalf of the poor and the widows Mm. um, who are oppressed. Mm. Um, And it seems to me like this is a kind of story that emerges out Mm. of that very Jewish conviction that God's justice isn't isn't impartial in the way that we sometimes think about that. It is partial. It is on the side of Mm. those who are in situations of hopelessness or marginalization or um, systemic or societal oppression. Right. And I think if I if I if I were to uh, be with a group looking at this text I would ask who it is that they would identify themselves with right. the judge or the or, or the widow and that would be an interesting uh, exercise because obviously this text is very clearly telling us uh, that what the judge is doing here is not what is required of a judge or expected. Uh, I think that's right. The the, the point of the parable seems to be um, actually primarily to compare the judge with God. Mm -hmm. So the the parable seems to be saying um, God is unlike (laughs) the judge um, because God's justice will come certainly, uh, it will come certainly and it will also come either quickly or suddenly Mm -hmm. and is associated with this theme of the coming of the Son of Man. Mm. Um, But also... um, then you're the the woman in terms of the woman you're invited to become like the woman mm-hmm. to be persistent persevering oh, yes. in your relationship with it yeah. and um, there's a bit of confusion because the opening of the parable seems to frame it in terms of the woman you should mm-hmm. persevere in mm-hmm. prayer whereas the ending of the parable seems to frame it theologically in terms of you know what god is going to do and how sure we can be in god's mm-hmm. 
um, God's promises. Mm. Um, it's quite an exquisite little story, just in yeah. terms of the drama a preacher should really kind of take the time, I think, to open up and imagine their way into mm. the drama of this story. Yeah. Um, my favourite detail is um, uh, the detail that in uh, the verse where it says, the judge says, you know, this woman is going to wear her, wear me wear. out. Yes. Um, yeah. the, gr- the Greek word is the word that we use for kind of give me a black eye. Mm. She's going to, if she just keeps on coming, she's going to punch me in the eye and give me yeah. a black eye. Right. So it's a dramatic uh, story designed again, like the Jeremiah Oracle, to address this situation of what do you do when you're longing for um, a justice that is not yet fully realised? Yeah. Um, so shall we move on then? I think yeah? so, yeah. yeah Let's yeah. talk so about... I just um, want, to, uh, want to highlight this notion of persistence or resilience and perseverance uh, and bring that to uh, attention in the psalm uh, for today, which is Psalm 119, uh, verses 97 to 104. Uh, the psalm uh, basically is about a, a, a sojourner who sees life as a journey. Uh, and, um, and this particular individual uh, needs the light of God provided through the study of scripture uh, to aid him or her uh, in this journey of life. Um, And so uh, we need to, first of all, uh, acknowledge uh, that the the sojourner is as central to the psalm, this notion of sojourning is central to the psalm and our understanding of the psalm. Um, The psalm is interesting because it is the longest, as most of us know. It's pretty long, right? (laughs) Yes, it is 176 verses or something. And it is, is, uh, you know, uh, it is an acrostic, which is basically a teaching or a didactic device. Um, The focus of the psalm is is the study of the Torah, translated as instruction or law or teaching, and um, and the central assertion in the psalm is that the psalmist is going to adhere to the Torah commands and to benefit from this adherence, um, which also bears affinity with uh, with Psalm one. Hmm. So, um, in the pericope for today, uh, the uh, the Hebrew letter is Mem, yep. uh, okay, which is the which, yeah, the thirteenth <laughs> the thirteenth letter. Uh, in the Hebrew alphabet, and it begins uh, with, you know, I love your teaching, or I meditate or study it all day long. Of course, most of our translations use the word law yep. instead of teaching, and I think it's important that we uh, recognize the fact that which word we use actually makes a difference to how that that, right. that verse is received. And I prefer, I think, teaching rather yep. than law. Yep. Um uh, and so uh, the psalmist is celebrating what this uh, meditation on the Torah will uh, will provide mm. uh, to him or her mm. in, uh, in, in his or her journey. Um, and so, th- so I think uh, also it's uh, it's important that what is required here is not flat obedience to the commandments or the teachings or or the precepts and the statutes, uh, but trust and loyalty in the covenant partner, namely God. Um, and this uh, this trust and obedience is embodied, okay, right. embodied uh, in obedience, um, which is interpersonal, uh, interactive. Yeah, good. Know? So, so justice, as you said, is relational, um, and so similarly here, the uh, the obedience to the Torah uh, is manifested in how you relate both to God, the vertical dimension, but also the uh, the horizontal dimension. Of and so that relational notion of justice has mm. both that vertical and that horizontal, horizontal dimension to it. I think this is really <clears throat> important. We've talked um, on a few occasions today about 
the way in which we sometimes limit our understanding of these kind of key biblical theological terms and the word law is another one right and mm-hmm. um, torah and mm-hmm. um, we so often read that or think about it because we have quite prejudicial understandings of the way in which law might have functioned in hebrew or israelite or jewish religion we might think of it as kind of rules or regulations or do's and don'ts that are really all about making sure that you pass some kind of morality test or get over some kind of holiness hurdle um and torah isn't that it it was always the gift of god Mm -hmm. to enable the people of israel to live out their covenant Mm -hmm. relationship um with god with god and and with with others that's right um and that you know from the ten commandments onwards Mm -hmm. you can flesh out what torah what law looks Mm -hmm. like by thinking of it in in those terms Mm -hmm. so the language of teaching helps us because Mm -hmm. Teaching isn't about a set of rules. It's about uh, an understanding of the world that enables you to live in relationship to the world in particular kinds yeah, of ways. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so this uh, this love for the Lord's teaching is marked by study and by right living. Yeah. Um, and so uh, the psalmist says, just by study of the of the scriptures. Uh, it, the psalmist understands God much better than what he has been taught by elders and by teachers. Uh, And so there is a very personal dimension uh, to this relationship uh, as well, but this personal dimension is then expanded and lived out in the context of community and and society. That's really helpful. Mm -hmm. Which probably brings us to the final text, um, which is 2 Timothy chapter 3, Verse 13, it kind of starts a bit mid-argument really, but runs through to 4, 5. And it includes quite famous verses in which um, uh, some kind of understanding of the place and the role of Scripture is narrated. And I guess that connects us with um, that question of what it means to attend Mm -hmm. to and study and meditate on God's Word um, within the context of um, a faithful covenant relationship. In verse chapter 4, verse 1, it's fairly clear that that is, to use the technical language, that's kind of eschatologically framed. In the presence of God and of Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead and in view of his appearing and his kingdom. So we're still looking for the fullness of that justice. There's still this expectation. But what you do as you're waiting is you don't sit still, right? You, you commit yourself to a process of understanding of learning um that is uh, uh, as you said i think you used language earlier about being embodied mm-hmm. um and i think this is basically two timothy is a text that <clears throat> is trying to encourage the church to do that work through the personification of the person of timothy and the relationship between timothy and the apostle paul mm-hmm. In my view, fictionalized. I mm-hmm. think this is written after Paul has died, mm-hmm. um, but it's an attempt to continue the Pauline tradition as a tradition that is worthy of ongoing reflection and engagement. Um, I mean, famously, of course, the pastoral epistles do that. I think very interestingly and creatively, in some senses, and in quite problematic ways in other places as well. Mm. But I think the point is exactly the one that you made. You know, what are what are the resources that we have mm. as we look for and work for and try to make God's justice 
real in the world. Well, one of the resources we have is God's law written on our hearts. Yes. Yeah? Or yes. we have um, the Torah, which we are to meditate on and to study. Yeah. Or we have or scripture, scripture, which is useful yeah. for reproof. Yeah. And I think it is it is very significant that Timothy here, um, you know, emphasizes the fact that all scriptures God breathed, uh, useful for importantly teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training uh, in righteousness. And so scripture has has a multifold function. You know, it can it can be used for, for varied things um, for the uh, edification of life. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and because of its capacity to do that, to be life-giving in those mm-hmm. kinds of ways, um, the requirement and the obligation upon people of faith to continue to engage with Scripture as a part of their faithfulness and their discipleship mm-hmm. and their prayer yeah. um, seems to me to be there and inherent in all of the texts that we've looked at today. Yes. Monica, thanks ever so much for spending time talking about those various texts today. That's been great. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. By the Well is brought to you by Pilgrim Theological College and the Uniting Church in Australia. It's produced by Adrian Jackson. Thanks for listening.